Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile's Sound Notes. Today I'm here with Matthew Oates, and we're going to talk all about leading in ambiguity. So before we jump into that, Matthew, would you mind talking a little bit about your superhero origin story before we jump into this topic? Sure, Dave. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So, so my leading in ambiguity origin story really starts with the fact that I'm, I'm hardwired as a engineer. I went to school for industrial engineering. I always grew up thinking very linear. Uh, and then I went to a fine arts high school, uh, had a lot of really great professors at uh, University of Georgia Tech who sort of tried to break that mold and get you to think out of the box, think creatively. And the combination of being hardwired as a, as a structured person, but really loving the thrill of uh, not having structure and ambiguous, you know, the, the world around us is, is not always structured. Uh, it just has me always ending up in that space where I, where I like to lead in ambiguity, maybe more so than, than other folks. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, and your role at Leading Agile, could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that'll set some context too. Sure. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a consultant, uh, senior consultant that was brought in as a product specialist, which essentially denotes that I have a background in a specific domain around product, product management, design thinking. And currently I lead projects that uh, are, I'm working right now specifically on a define the end state engagement. Okay. All right. Um, and this topic is something that I, I get this topic a lot. It's something that I know I struggled with and something that I have tried to help a lot of other people through. You get into a gig and you don't have any clarity on what your job is. They just like, I think if you're hired as a consultant, they throw you into a place, a lot of companies, or if you're working like as a project manager, maybe you've got a project, nobody's told you what your job is. Uh, and that's very disconcerting for a lot of people. They need to know, like, what am I supposed to do all day long? But you don't seem to me to be that kind of person. <laughs> no, what's funny is I'm I'm constantly seeking to figure out what I need to do, maybe a day or a week in advance. But when I wake up each day, I my my day doesn't unravel if things change and things shift. So I, I will say preparation is key to suppressing that anxiety. Uh, but once you're prepared, if you get used to working in ambiguity, um, the, the, the preparation is, is really the, the main thing. In fact, right before this call, I, I was a little bit behind this week on preparing for some stuff uh, that I needed to get done this week. I had about an hour and a half. And so I took my iPad I actually went down to the local museum here in Richmond, Virginia, and just sat in a museum hall and uh, put a bunch of structure and plans together in, uh, in on my iPad, just to just plan the rest of the week. It was hilarious, by the way, to see people walking past thinking I was some, some student who was like sketching out notes and all they would see is like <laughs> letters and, and written form. They were very confused thinking I was doing it, but I just... I like to go into spaces where I can think creatively as I, as I do that preparation. Okay. Um, just so I don't get too like down in the details. But yeah. All that to say preparation is, is certainly key. If you have that sort of, I need structure, I need to know. So I'm going to make a note that I want to come back to preparation at the end. I want to talk about basically what it's like for people when they get into this space. But the first thing I want to hit on is you chose to go to an art museum and 
I just want to check in on this because for me, I feel like if if I am a machine that does work, and part of that work I get paid for, part of it I don't. The machine has to be fed certain things to keep it running properly. It needs food. It needs sleep. It needs lots of caffeine. For me, it needs a fair amount of music. It sounds like your machine might need a little bit of ambient artwork or creativity stuff like that. I mean, is that part of what allows you to give yourself the space to let things in and kind of figure themselves out? Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's a, It's sort of a thing that I injected into my workflow, how I get stuff done. I, it doesn't actually have to be visual art. Like okay. it could be music. I have three different albums that I would normally listen to depending upon the type of work that I'm doing. And I just listen to them over and over again. So I do that when I'm like actually getting work specifically done from a production perspective. But when I'm when I'm planning, I tend to, and preparing, I tend to not want to sit in front of my computer. I might go on a walk and hit stuff okay. on, you know, walk in a park and hit stuff on my phone. I might, like I mentioned, go to a museum or a coffee shop. But what it, it does is it forces me to think uh, in a sort of bigger picture sense than just like, here I am a machine. I need to write the code lines that I'm going to do for the rest of the week. Uh, that has never worked out for me. Cause then I'll just get way too detailed really fast. Then an hour and a half will go by and I'll have written like a requirements document wow. for my week, which just does not, does not. So work. you're not, so. distraction is not a threat for you. It's going too far down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. Again, okay. during preparation, distraction while I'm trying to produce something, producing yeah. content, um, preparing for like specifically for a meeting distraction okay. destroys me. Um, right. which is why I'll, I'll listen to like the same. I, what are the three? I, I was gonna, my next yeah. question is yeah, what are the three, albums? what are the three albums? All right. So there is an album, uh, that's like best of Brahms. It's like Hungarian dances. Um, where I'll listen to like, you've heard the song like, so that one, it's an album that has that. Um, there is an album, like a Charlie Parker album that's live, like Which Charlie one? Parker. So some jazz. Um, let's see real fast. It is, I'm just bringing it up on my uh, phone here. Um, da, 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 da. the Charlie Parker album is, I have it in a playlist so I can like command my, um, Amazon listening device to have it come up. Let's see. It's so I didn't realize, by the way, Charlie Parker is, he's like a legend. I found out about Charlie Parker from <laughs> yes. a children's book. I'd never, I really? heard of like Miles Davis and stuff like this, but my daughter, there has would a be no Miles Davis Char without Charlie Parker. I know. Like, and like, is it chick Korea? Uh huh. All these guys. Um, Let's see, The Genius of Charlie Parker. I yeah. don't know if it's like a, um, yeah, but it starts with like the 52nd Street theme where it's like this cool little opening where it's okay. a live stuff and then it just goes on. It's, I don't know, it's like a, it's an hour and 56 minutes. So, and then the other one is, um, uh, I don't know if you're going to have to like bleep this out on a podcast, but uh, Miles Davis, uh, Bitches Brew. Um, wow. Okay. I just added that because I was reading a Wall Street Journal magazine uh, article about an artist, uh, 
really cool African-American artist who was sort of in a funk at some time in like the 60s or the 70s, maybe. Him and his wife moved to Italy. Okay. And that's where he rose to fame. I can't remember the artist's name off the top of my head. But in that article, it mentioned that he, um, this artist listens to that album, like on repeat. Let's just listens to it straight through. It comes back, listens to it. And that's all he does when he's doing his art. I'm like, Hey, I do that for wow. coding or whatever. I, I did used to have like this weird techno. I was sure you were going to say Radiohead. I was like, he's going to say kid A. It's going to be kid A. <laughs> no. I did know I did used to have a, a weird like techno computer beats thing when I would code more like um, Neo. just because it feels yeah exactly just because it feels so cool to <laughs> be like heads building, in the background yeah. like writing software yeah when you feel like you're a you know some sentient being but um yeah that's what I do that's my <laughs> creative right. process and you cool. I mean that's a perfect example of what we talked about at the beginning that the superpower about leading and ambiguity as someone who is structured like I have developed certain habits that force me to like inject creativity, inject ambiguity. Like that's one of the reasons I listen to jazz is because I like, I have to have pops of something to interrupt um, my like spinning thoughts around stuff. But yeah, it's interesting that you pick bitches brew because that's one that for me is, is too hard. Like I, I get from an ambiguity standpoint, it yeah. makes sense, but it's, I'm big Miles Davis fan. That record is one that everybody loves and I still have a hard time with. Um, yeah. I only picked it up because that guy, he's like a <laughs> successful artist and he does this sort of pattern that I use. So yeah. Like, cool. Yeah. I do. I always love also the idea of like an album in yeah. its entirety. Like I think a lot of people, might date myself here, but like in my generation, no, or whatever, it's, it's a lost with, thing with easy access yeah. to any song that you want. And by all means, I still listen to like a playlist of all my favorite stuff. But when you can tap into like the artist's intention of what they put in an album, uh, it's just a cool, cool experience. Yeah. It's a shame um, we've lost the art of the mixtape as well. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So let's talk about ambiguity. So, I want to try to give a couple examples and maybe you can kind of riff on these a little bit. Um, situation where somebody's made manager of a department. The first time I got put in charge of a PMO, they had never had a PMO before. And the boss I reported to knew nothing about project management. So he didn't give me any instruction at all. Um, I've been on, like I said, mentioned before, transformation gigs where they just, I get hired by a company. They're like, go fix this. And I get no other instruction. I don't even get a statement of work. Um, you're in a situation where we're reorganizing some of the stuff we're doing. You're working with a client. Um, you're changing the tires as the car's moving. That is very unnerving for a lot of people. So I guess the first question is, does that raise anxiety for you? And if so, like, what is the thing that you focus on that helps you breathe when you get there? Yeah. So the ambiguity itself, um, doesn't raise anxiety, but when that ambiguity intersects with expectations Mm -hmm. of what I need to do and what others need to do and what the client needs to do, like I'm okay not knowing specifically what I need to do, but I get anxious when I see like uh, client stakeholders or, you know, uh, members of the team be thinking that, 
we need to be doing one thing or we're saying one thing and we're doing something different. So that's okay. when my sort of uh, heart rate starts to increase a little bit. So spoken so, or either either overtly spoken or not, expectations on the client side, plus I would imagine internally as well, you report to people. They probably have some idea, maybe. Yeah, I, re- I report to, especially on this client, and I think, I mean, we don't really have crazy reporting structures here at Leading Agile, but effectively, uh, I often have to report up to Andrew Young, who I know you've had on the podcast for a yeah. while. Andrew's a great guy, a wonderful vision caster. Um, but, you know, one thing that I think even Andrew will admit is uh, he is, he is, bettered by people who have uh, more follow through than he does not mm-hmm. to say that he doesn't have follow through, but he will go from good to great by people who sort of uh, keep tabs on accountability and what we need to do. So yeah. it is very, but he's also like incredibly creative um, and sort of a, a big, big thinker. So like a big picture thinker. So uh, in terms of ambiguity there, I mean, ambiguity is sometimes all over the place working with, working with, with Andrew or, or, or people like that. And, um, again, that doesn't necessarily bother me, but then when you throw Andrew in the mix with me and the mix with other team members and then different parts of the client, um, it's sort of the, the, the teasing out of all of that Mm -hmm. into like a, a day by day, week by week plan, you're not going to get a plan and ambiguity like organically that anyone's going to right. sign off on. Like, so you, you have to put some intentionality into, you know, addressing that anxiety pretty soon or else it'll just sort of go all over the place. Okay. And just for the folks that are listening, part of what we're trying to do at leading agile is make sure that when people are working on engagements, if you have somebody who is like super creative and vision oriented, but those people are very often great with that, but not so much on the the details and and all the execution follow-up stuff. People that are excellent at the execution and follow-up stuff are not always as as adept at you know the blank canvas and figuring out what to put on it so um, we're trying to make sure that there's people that have a balance of that and then put them together and it sounds like you and andrew would kind of fit in he's gonna outline stuff and you're gonna fill it all in yeah yeah exactly right and we'll make sure that it's it's funny we're starting to see even in a particular client I'm working with, it's a lot of really great folks and folks there are sort of one or the other there. There's sometimes there's a mix of both, but it's interesting to also, if you think about just stakeholders in any organization, but if we think about like our client stakeholders, Mm -hmm. there's going to be people who also fall into that pattern. So how do you build influence and trust with those folks as to become co-conspirators with them. We talk about that word all the time, this idea that those stakeholders who are responsible for the transformation journey become co-conspirators with us where we can feed off of each other's ideas, access opportunity internally within the the client, but then also externally from ideas. Those people also have a high degree of ambiguity uh, and probably pattern match uh, differently in terms of how they approach that ambiguity, whether or not it makes them anxious or not. So, um, so yeah, all of that stuff, when it mixes together is like the idea of it doesn't scare me. The, um, when I see 
things sort of going off the rails a little bit, um, that's when I sort of, my spidey senses. Well, how do you know they're off the, (laughs) so this is the thing I'm really curious about. If, if there is no like defined boundary, how do you know something is off the rails? Because that's what a lot of people well, fear. Like they don't know when they yeah. – I mean I have this problem all the time. Like I I don't know all always when I've gone like beyond what is okay. Yeah. I mean I, I think there's sort of two parts to that for me. One, that gets easier with trust. And so your trust in, in each Andrew. other. Okay. So yeah, my trust in Andrew versus my trust in teammates versus the trust that we build with clients and obviously the trust the client – stakeholders have among themselves like it's one of the reasons why it's important to not just focus on the things and the Mm -hmm. deliverables but the relationships and sort of the social context that's going on like in in the engagement i'll so so that's probably one of the ways that you can tell it's going off the rails and it's harder to do that early on as you're building relationships with people. But that's one of the reasons why like one of our principles is talk, talks about the idea of, you know, stable, persistent teams and the power of teams, right. high trust teams, familiarity with high trust teams. It can be second nature for people to detect things are going off the rails in those contexts. Yeah. Like the higher degree of trust a team has from a, almost an intuition, people can tell when things are going off. The and you've kind of got norm, uh, norm behavior and stuff like that. So it's, it's easier to see when something is skated past the boundaries. Exactly. And you don't really have the luxury early on in projects. So to a certain degree, you just have to accept the fact that, you know, you've heard the, tor- the term forming, storming, norming, that type of thing. Like yeah. At some point, you just have to calibrate your spidey sense, your, okay. your ability to deal with ambiguity, just to what stage you're at. Like I'm never going to be as anxious about things feeling a little bit off when you're in the forming and storming stage. But if I, you know, am on a team where we've been norming for a while and we're, we're performing and something starts to feel off that, yeah. that has more of the red flags go off. So early stages, I just have to calibrate. Okay. That, that sense based upon tr- trust. But then on the flip side of it, like I don't care how comfortable you are with am- ambiguity or creativity or anything like that. A, a team that needs to get something done needs to have some clarity of a plan, right? Leading agile oh, good. talks okay. about teams, backlogs, working, working tests, tests and software. product, product. Yeah. Well, yeah. Sorry. Product. There we go. <laughs> right, as a product guy, I'm going to get ex- you know, extra <laughs> negative points on mentioning software. There. Um, but like that's that's real. If I have clarity of my backlog, yeah, and I don't, feel, I'm not working down on my backlog in a given day. You're going to start feel it's going to start feeling a little off. Okay, we have outcomes based plans. Right? One of the reasons we have outcomes based plans is a compensating control for the exact effect that you're talking about. You know, things are off the rail if right. you're puddling around. You're piddling around relative to the outcomes-based plan that everybody's agreed to at some point where like people weren't, you know, when we were on the rails yeah. and you sort of knew where the train was going to go. It's not like we were in the business of, you know, driving a train and we only build the track a quarter mile in front of us. We, we should have some sense of like where we're trying to head okay. at any given time. So. so, so what 
advice or how would you coach someone if you had somebody like on the client side who found themselves in a situation where they had to lead and there were no clear expectations? I mean, do you, in, in your way of approaching that, do you or have you ever had sort of like a step-by-step, like this is the the boundaries I'm going to create for myself or the expectations I'm going to set for myself? Like how do you craft that so you have a space within which to work? Yeah, I, I, I haven't like written it down, so I'm not going to like flip through a notepad to go, oh, yeah, well, in that particular case, let me look it up. Well, they can't <laughs> see. They don't know. <laughs> you can be like, oh, yes, I've got this in my 15-point right, plan. <laughs> Yeah, let me let me bring up page. Uh, yeah, so I would say almost always the first thing I'll talk about and work with someone on is having some clarity of what success will look like. Okay. So even in a sense of great ambiguity, or you know, you don't know what's going on, you know to a certain degree that can be freeing because you can just define your own version of like a hypothesis of what success looks sure. like. So just nail down and, you know, some people call it goal setting athletes like to, you know, envision themselves winning the thing or whatever it is. When I was doing small business and nonprofit offering consulting, I always started with um, like storyboarding the success story. I just think it's, it's helpful to have a, like as a target. rich of point of view in your head as to what success is going to look like when you're in a highly ambiguous context that, where there's a lot of ambiguity that serves you well, because one, it's actually going to eliminate some of the like ambiguity of the unknown in your mm-hmm. head. If you, if you can visualize or write down or whatever you want to do, what success is going to look like, that's going to naturally li- eliminate some of that. But then mm-hmm. it also gives you this thing to bounce off of others. Like okay. you're in a situation where there's a you whole ton feedback. of ambiguity. You can since make it for yourself, but then if you've done that, you can be more confident to, like you said, get feedback. Um, so I think that would be where I would start for sure. Okay. So I want to like pause here with feedback for a second. Cause that was another thing that we were going to try to talk a little bit about. What if, and this is, I think, a fear a lot of people would have. They do that sense-making for themselves and like, I totally got it. And then they pitch it to somebody else and it's like crickets in the background. And we had, we at the offsite, I was in a conversation. I was sort of like on the boundaries of a conversation that Mike was in. And I was like, well, it's kind of like da-da-da. And he just looked at me like, what the expletive are you talking about? And I was just like, Ugh. And so, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that happens, right? Yeah. So how do you I, yeah, can, how can, do you cope with that? How do you work past the anxiety that sense making for yourself and then sharing it with other people? You're you're not worried about getting your head cut off. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting is even if you have a perspective and a point of view and you bounce it off somebody that you're trying to get feedback and alignment with, like there's no bad outcome from that, even if they disagree and throw it out because at the end of the day if you if you started with a you know let's let's imagine let's imagine a pizza pie so if you started with a pizza pie of all possible outcomes right yeah and you decided all right i'm gonna add i'm gonna take a stab add some toppings on this chunk of it see if people you know like it 
and you feed it to them and they hate it. Well, now you at least have a smaller like realm of possible things that you have to consider as to what you want to do next. Like again, and highly in one like, less way to not ambiguous build a con- Yeah. Like in highly ambiguous contexts, I, it's a different problem set altogether. If it's highly ambiguous for you, but it's not highly ambiguous for the person you need to do something for. Like, I think that's a different set of problem. That's a different type of problem where it's, it's not universally ambiguous. (laughs) That's just a mis that's a misunderstanding of expectations. But even in that context, you throw something out there out there and it gets shut down. You at least know that it's not that like that's that has, that has limited. It's being married. You just described being married. (laughs) (laughs) And wait, in what sense? Hold on. Here we go. This is good. In the, in that like every day, I think I haven't figured out. And then I'm like, Oh, all right, well, let's give it another shot tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, at some point then you'll land you know, well, you get a clear understanding of the things that do work. Yeah, I guess where I was going with yeah. it was even though, like, even in my situation, when I said the thing to Mike and he was like, looked at me like I was crazy, I know that it's not that now. So I know that either my explanation wasn't clear or the idea was flawed, but it's something I can I can kind of kick off of and head in another direction. When you don't have any feedback at all, it's really hard to tell whether what you're doing is going the right way. Exactly right. Like, you know more about that whole situation than exactly what either it was your delivery of the idea or the idea itself. You know more about that than before you, 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 you tossed it out. Yeah. So like that is useful data. It's useful information that if you turn into, you know, the next time you form a hypothesis and bring something up, you 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 have a clear view of where you might go. Hopefully, I mean the other the other side of it too is like ambiguity in a situation where there's a lack of safety and trust. Like that's just like from a like evolutionary standpoint, like as, as just like an organism. Yeah. <laughs> we don't particularly like that. <laughs> like if you if you don't have a lot of context around something. It's just you're living in a dark room without even being able to shine a light on something. Yeah, you don't know what the measure of success is. It's hard to know. I mean, that can be very frustrating for people. Yeah. So then, like, as as human beings, as people, as team members on a project, you always have at your disposal the opportunity in any given day to write it down or to put some thoughts together you know, define it as a, you know, what does success look like? Right. And send it to somebody. And if you have a stakeholder or someone who you're reporting to, who's not a, just a total jerk, they'll give you some sort of feedback to at least shed some light over here. Okay. Well, we don't want to go there. Or yeah, we want to go that, go that way. Yeah. But like always want to, you always want to avoid that paralysis around ambiguity. Like, Ambiguity is just a current state. This is going to sound super meta, but ambiguity is just a current state of mind. You can do something to shrink the amount of ambiguity at any given time. Like you can always do okay. something to do that. And if you always have options around that, yeah, 
it's 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 not as it's not as big a deal as as you think at any given moment. I think so. I want to the thing that I have done when I have felt like it was too much, like it was like choking on the ambiguity, which is I think a little bit different than your approach. I often don't have like a this is what success looks like. I have mm. I'm going that way. Like that's as close as I'm willing to commit, but I will find whoever it is that can fire me and go to them and say, look, I've not been given a lot of instruction and I'm going to aim in this direction. And if I cross over a line, I hope that you will tell me. But if you don't tell me, I'm going to assume it's cool. Um, yeah. Because in that way, I mean, it, whenever I've been in that situation, I'm usually reporting to somebody who doesn't even understand what I'm supposed to do either. So um, you have mutual ambiguity. Well, like yeah, but it, but at least that, that way, be that much of a stressful situation, well, even though like mentally, once you get through it, it can be. It's usually that if I do trip over the line, they're going to be like, oh, that was way bad. Like it's so extreme. Yeah. But um, I feel like I have done something to create guardrails for myself because now it is, it's on them to tell me if I'm getting too close to the edge. Otherwise it's fair game. Um, and I, I guess where I, for you, it's that measure of success. For me, it is knowing that like there's walls here somewhere and somebody's going to tell me when I hit them. And other than that, yeah, I can just keep I, bouncing around. I almost have a cavalier approach to, to that in the sense that like I almost expect and trust that that will happen. I don't okay. know if it's like uh I don't know if it's a flavor of, you know, do it and ask forgiveness later. I don't think it's really that. I, I sort of think that, you know, I, I, I think you assume that you live in a healthy system that will tell yeah, you. But, but <laughs> to, to, <laughs> well, no, I assume I, mean, I, I live I, in an unhealthy system. <laughs> I, I think I, I play the game a little bit different than anybody else in the sense that, um, like, again, I, so I, I run my own business. Like right now, if under whatever circumstances happened, um, you know, with cause or without cause, whatever, if I had to, you know, change an employment and provide for my family, which at the end of the day, like a lot of this always comes down. I don't think, I think very few people, you know, maybe a large portion of the podcasts could don't, you know, have unlimited resources and, can do whatever they want to. Yeah. Um, but if, if you have an obligation to provide for people, if you think bigger than just like your work life, um, there is always some rationalization in terms of the choices you make at work relative to like making sure you have stability from an employment mm -hmm. perspective. But as someone who started their own business, when I had an like, eight month old at home and has an approach to my work life where I always have optionality. Like I do have a decently cavalier approach to like going in a direction and being okay with how it pans out. Like at the end of the day, if I really go off the, if I go into uncharted waters mm -hmm. and it becomes a, a problem, um, that was probably result of either a broken system or me just not paying attention to the signs. It's like okay. I'm willing to take that risk and, 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 you know, move in whatever directions are sort of implied. Yeah. And I, I'm also the type of person, like, to be completely frank with you, I do believe 
having some guardrails and parameters, like having a, a yoke, if you will, yeah. to the direction that you need to head actually increases freedom, increases opportunity, yeah. like increases liberty, increases creativity. I, like, I, I do want to have an understanding of the boundaries, the parameters to work with, because I, I find that, I find that free. If I don't have that type of ambiguity, I'm probably seeking that out before I actually seek out, like seeking out what the parameters are yeah. before I'm seeking out like the step-by-step plan to know what I'm going to do every day. Yeah. It's like, if you can have anything tonight for dinner in the world first, you can have one of these four things. It's easier to choose between the four things. I would go to that second restaurant every <laughs> single day. Hands down. It's so, like the whole, did you know that just so, so yeah, anyway, there's, no, there's a ahead. sidebar here around. Go ahead. Yeah, so, so, there is something, I, one of my favorite classes at school, so I went to Georgia Tech, industrial and systems engineering, and one of my favorite classes was humanitarian logistics, which, by the way, was by some awesome, awesome professor who was really sort of front page news uh, when the pandemic broke out because she had studied how pandemics um, uh, like go down in other parts of the world. Anyway, there was a class where it talked about Waffle House's like, disaster response recovery team. Um, and Waffle House has a mandate and like a control center and this whole thing that's Waffle House wants to be the first thing to open in a disaster area, you know, hurricane, tornado, whatever. They, they want to make sure that they are open for business in some form or capacity in the communities that they serve as quickly as possible after a disaster. Like, so they have like disaster SWAT teams that go in with like trailers that they can, you know, if the Waffle House even got leveled, they'll have a trailer version of a Waffle House ready to go. And one of the approaches to that response is they shrink and limit their menu. So talk about ambiguity. Mm-hmm. They don't even know if they're going to have power. They don't know anything about this. Waffle House will stand up this restaurant if the building still exists. If not, they'll have like their buses come in and, and do that. And they just they completely shrink. They, they limit as many variables as possible and you can get five things. And that's it. And I remember in that class sitting here thinking, honestly, I, I would go to that Waffle House yeah. more than I would go to the other Waffle Houses. Well, it- <laughs> like I, I love that. People are so overwhelmed. They need simple choices and they need comfort food. I mean, that's a great mission to be on to help restore yeah. and their I was humanity. not intending to go this way whatsoever. But when it comes to leading an ambiguity, if you've already had an understanding of what success looks like, then if you come up with some simple options of what you, what you're going to be focusing on, like simplicity also helps with ambiguity. Yeah. You know, like it's like an interesting twist on of, an MVP too. Yeah, yeah Exactly. I'll give a perfect example Um, for a client that I've been on before. Leading Agile has outcomes-based plan. Outcomes-based plans are built into our platform, Navigator. Uh, Outcomes will show up in some form or fashion in a statement of work, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that might have to go through a procurement. And then obviously in whatever pitch decks or decks that our leadership team have gone through as they're, looking to close a partnership with a, with a client to get some work done. They'll have some decks there too. I've, I've actually started a project before and tried to sense make what I needed to do on a particular project and found that the, there's enough variation on the outcomes that are listed in the SOW right? and then in Navigator and then on the decks, just because naturally how things work, that is an ambiguous context where you're not, that would it would constrain developing a working relationship from a 
client perspective, if someone had to go like look at the template and navigator to make sure they're saying the right things and then align that with it, just, that's not how the world works. But once something gets signed, if those three things are different, talk about a classic position of ambiguity. You know, you're going to need to start a project and there's some variation here, variation here, all those kinds of things. That's just a natural byproduct of being a small business. So one of the things that I always do to, uh, when I approach that circumstance is I, I'll just simplify. I'm, okay. What are the thing? What's, what are the high level outcomes here? Yeah. Is there something that we've missed? Okay. Then I'll take note of that and then I'll go drill it down one more and I'll, I'll look at, okay, when I sense make these things that are, you know, within a particular outcome, I, I will, you know, align the, the wording there. But I, if I just, live in this space where I don't know what I need to do and everything's saying a different thing. And then I just escalate that. Yeah. It doesn't help anybody. Like I, I have to, I have to simplify and sense make my context, context of anything just to give me a, some peace of mind. Um, so it feels like I was trying to think of a way to like summarize this. And you said something earlier about shrinking the ambiguity. And I really like that in my head that seems like you know you, you put some boundaries around it and you shrink it down to the point where it's a space you can be creative in but that isn't too constraining that you can't do what you need to do yeah uh, yeah i mean if anything it's it could be like the difference between walking into a a, a forest needing to get somewhere the difference between having little markers along like the journey versus having an explicit path versus having a paved path that's, you know, Mm -hmm. handicap accessible. Like I don't know many people who just want to show up at a forest and walk around, like without, without anything. I also, yeah, I also don't know people who, if they were, you know, going to do that, they're going to, you know, bring a, a, you know, some sort of heavy equipment and just start building a path right on it. They're probably just going to, have some flags that they have in their pocket, you know, like tie it together. Well, yeah, but even of, that, you're thing, so. you're shrinking the ambiguity because you can always go back by following your own exactly. Flags. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think there is something ambiguity is like ambiguity is is a given at any at any given ambiguity is almost a certainty when you're talking about change and transformation and the combination of a consulting firm and a client like needing to work together to create change. Yeah. So if you can have some, you know, techniques to sort of simple and some people talk about this from a framing perspective, if you, if you can, have a sense of what success looks like. Mm-hmm. If you can simplify what you're going to be doing in that context down to either an outcomes based plan, if it's that formal um, or simply just a, your own punch list of what you need to do next. Like that just, that anchors you to something real. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I think that's, you and know, that anchor, and that a, anchor's really important too. Yeah. The anchor's important. Yeah, you, ha- you have to anchor to something concrete that you can understand. And then from a leadership perspective, if you haven't done that, you're just going to like seem all over the place from a leader. Like leaders have to have some sort of clarity of purpose 
and clarity of, of what's going on, even in highly ambiguous context. If you, yeah. if you don't have your own like point of view, that's like a simple point of view around what needs to happen. That's going to be evident whenever you show up. I mean, I, like I did, I, I did this a couple of weeks ago in a meeting where I, you know, got some people together to go over something and I hadn't had the sufficient level of preparedness in that meeting because the whole situation was ambiguous and that, that meeting sucked for everyone involved, <laughs> including myself, because I wasn't prepared. I hadn't right. simplified sort of my thoughts around that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, if anything, we maybe like amplified the ambiguity. Well, so there's two things. Um, there's two things here. One is you said you have to have something. I have to have some kind of opinion about direction. And there's a part of me that's thinking, yeah, even if it's wrong, like you have to be able to say yeah. something. Um, and even though we have to have that people don't always have that. And so then like the, the point of mentioning that is like, even you who know this stuff, you still run into the situations periodically where you're like, ah, this is a mess and you just got to figure your yeah. way out of it. Um, yeah. The, the one it, it goes back to what we talked about early on. Like if I'm operating on all cylinders, if I'm prepared for something weirdly enough to like, I learned that from some, it was like an interview that Ginny Rometty did. She was an IBM CEO. And okay. I started my career at IBM. Okay. And Ginny Rometty talked about how important preparation is to what you're going to, even if it's just like five minutes ahead of an interview or five minutes before you do something, just preparation is key. For whatever reason, that, that stuck with me as a young buck. Big Both straight out of the art of war, man. Person. You got to show up prepared. <laughs> um, yeah, so that helps. The one thing that we haven't talked on, I don't know if you have any thoughts on it, because I'm not really sure how to speak to it, but people have fear. And and there are people that might be like, yes to everything you're saying, but they're still so scared that it's hard to take action. And I don't know, I don't, I don't know what to say to that. I don't know if you have a good a good response to that? Or if you had anybody that you were like coaching who was stuck on that? Like a yeah. I, I'm not naturally, I, I'm not naturally fearful just cause I frame how I go about life on, under from a different lens than what others, uh, I, 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 think, <laughs> I feel like I think there I, should be quotes under, you know, that says engineer. <laughs> yeah like like i i feel I, I i i'm not naturally afraid of anything that's happening in my work context mostly because like what's the worst that could happen i'm a, i i am intentionally not in the medical field i'm intentionally not in the law anything where someone is going to die or be like materially harmed if i make a bad decision right at any given moment like i i have strategically avoided that type of thing People can still be afraid in my context, but like I know for a fact, I do not like those circumstances. But even then, I'm not so so because of that. I, I'm not really af afraid of the consequences of any particular action that okay. that I might take. So it's hard. It's hard for me to say like, here's my thing that I do to overcome fear. I, I'm rarely afraid. Now, am I self-conscious about stuff? Sure. Do I have imposter syndrome sometimes? Like, yeah, but I, I don't look at those as a thing that I need to yeah. specifically address when I'm making decisions. 
I have managed folks and mentor a few folks who do get afraid of things. Uh, like even, you know, <laughs> speaking of, of, of marriage, my, my wife is like the sweetest, caring, most compassionate person. And as a result, sometimes like, you know, anyone else I've mentored or others, there, there is a fear factor there mm-hmm. of what if I screw something up? Uh, and I will say the, the best technique that I've done is like actually imagine what can happen. Like don't let up and say, okay, what's the worst that could happen? Think of it. And then, okay, what does that actually look like? Like don't avoid it. Don't be afraid of the unknown. Articulate it. Write it down if you need to. Something that's going to cause you to face it. Have it become more real. I'm sure there's yeah, a it's an option. Business. You make it an option. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure there's like a technique. I'm just sort of riffing at this point. We're put peanut like, butter on the pizza, and we're going to see what happens. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the same thing you, you get in front of a, a, a stakeholder. What, what's the, you know, in an internal review? Like people that, you know, have reviews internally with, with stuff. Like what's the worst that could happen? So some leader doesn't jive with what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, now you've learned something about that leader. You might have learned something about your delivery. You might have learned about the topic itself. Like, not the end of the world. Nobody died. Well, I think um, I think that that what you said about nobody dying. I mean, I'm sure there are. I know there are people in that field, but that's a big thing too. Is like putting it in perspective. You might get fired. Okay, you might get fired. That could happen to anybody. Yeah, but that's not. Yeah, you could get fired for a whole variety. That's of not reasons. dead. Yeah, if you're, if you're gonna if you're gonna get fired because of something that you spent time, energy, effort on to get in front of a leader and maybe your peers in a community and you get fired over that. Well, okay, let's look at maybe why that would have happened. Number one, your idea was terrible and you explicitly missed all of the signals that you needed to not bring up that idea. Yeah. Okay. Well, highly, you know, if that's the case, you're probably not suitable for employment at that position. Or, you know, maybe you had a bad day and you screwed up. Well, now you're recognizing that you may be in a system where that's a pretty harsh penalty for just poor delivery of a topic. You know, all of those types of things, like, and again, it's an opportunity to learn. Yeah. It's an opportunity to learn. And I have a heavy dose of if that's, if that's sort of the, the hand that you're dealt and how things play out, you are each and every day that you wake up and you're alive. You're, you're, you're going to be okay. Yeah. Like, and I, you know, I don't want to be insensitive to, to, to people where that's not their reality. Like if you're not okay and you're dealing with a lot of stuff, the last thing you need is to go present to your thing and, you know, risk something like, yeah, that's, that's true too. But there is a, there's a degree of trust that you have to put in the system and if you're deeply, deeply afraid of that type of thing, yeah, definitely just play out in your head what are the worst things that, that could happen. Yeah. Cool. Um, what if people want to follow up with you, if they have any you know, kind of questions to check in with you on? What's the best way to reach you? Yeah, you can reach me at matthew.oats at leadingagile.com. Last name is O-A-T-T-S because my forefathers decided to have a weird last spelling, but yeah, Matthew.oats at leading agile.com. Uh, you can Google me. I mean, I'll show up on LinkedIn pretty easily with that okay. last name as well. So. Cool. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate you doing this. Thanks, Dave. It was a pleasure. <laughs>